0: Called uh, Tom McLaughlin, live from the Director's Box at Even Club <laughs> Rugby Club, hiding away there. How are you, mate? You well?
1: Yeah, very good, thanks. Just in the uh, the throes of pre-season, but uh, all, all's going well.
0: I remember pre-season well. I don't miss it. I've been sat by the pool today with uh, Mark Woodrow, John Benson, two ex-players and None of us are missing preseason, so uh, it, it just never really felt like I was ready for the game when the game came around. If I'm honest, but uh, yeah, I,
1: I, th- I think preseasons probably, at least in my time, I've seen them sort of evolve and change and progress over the years. And I think if I look back at when I first started and where they are now, I would say they're a lot, a lot different, a lot more um, individually based, and also involve, at least in in my case anyway, they involve a rugby ball a lot earlier. Uh, and, I, and I think that's key. We can't lose sight of that fact, you know, that we're we're preparing preparing a team to play and ultimately win a game of rugby, and you want to make that process as sort of competitive, um, and and ultimately uh, as as much fun as well as possible because you can't lose sight of that either.
0: We rarely had a ball in July. <laughs> <laughs> Although, interestingly, I spoke to a Premiership player the other day, and he said they haven't had a ball yet, but they're aware that other clubs have balls, and so there's a there's obviously because they all speak to each other, they work out who gets the rugby balls out the earliest. And uh, actually, I was speaking to Ian Peel at Saracens, and I think they had the rugby balls out from day one. So that's it's uh, a good shout out to Saracens. Ooh, I mean, what? So tell me what, what type of stuff what's been going on for the last few weeks?
1: Yeah, so we started back uh, quite early. We started. Everyone starts in April
0: now, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, so luckily this year we didn't have a massive uh, upheaval transition of players. The season before we had 27 new players, but this season we were around 10 to 12. So we started back on the uh, on the third of June, uh, and, and ultimately we've been preparing and, and improving our our game plan and our style of play from from day one. Really, uh, that's on sort of a, a generic overview. Obviously, when you get into the nitty gritty of it, you, you know you've got to improve. Uh, individual players, where their deficiencies may be, um, what their position is within the team, what their role is within that game plan, and looking to sort of maximise their super strengths. And then, as I said, bring up the, the areas that are perhaps deficient and will have a, a big impact on uh, how well they can execute their role.
0: How connected are you guys? So, Wardy, obviously, coaches, first team you've got. I'm going to remember Glenn Towson's your forwards coaches name. Um yeah. ties, ties running academy. What... Um, how were you connected around that with analysts as well and maybe with, you know, physios and, um, and people, you said it's individualized. What does that look like?
1: Yeah, sure. So we have quite a large open plan office with uh, around, I think there's around 16 staff members in that office. So all the rugby staff, uh, all the S&C staff, uh, also, also some backroom staff in terms of commercial marketing. Uh, the physiotherapists therapists are in a different building, but... Uh, We're not perfect, but we we try to run an integrated model so uh, Wardy understands what I'm trying to achieve from a physical perspective and I understand what he's trying to achieve from a rugby perspective, which I think is key. I think uh, I've been in, in environments before where things can be siloed. You've got departments working independently, but not really crossing over. Uh, And and I think if you really want to maximise the time that you have with the players to make them better at playing the game, then you really have to run an integrated model. And and what that means is making sure that ultimately you're all on the same page, you're aligned. So I understand how Wardy wants to play the game. We try to play a fast, high-tempo game, but we do have structure uh, in line with that. So ultimately, I have to make sure that the players are physically equipped to play that type of game. Uh, in terms of what does it look like from an individual perspective, we test the players when they come in on the third of June. Relatively straightforward tests, the yo-yo test, some, some skin folds, uh, and we look straight away at say like their training age, the club that they have come from, uh, and then what position they're playing. And then quite quickly we can we can form sort of a mini profile of that player. Uh, what they need to do in order to maximise their role within our game plan uh, and ultimately uh, what kind of dose of, I guess, stress they need, really. Uh, So do they need more strength work? Do they need a bit more speed work? Do they need a bit more conditioning? Um, Or do they need to strip some of that fat off? This year, we've been really fortunate with the the season being pushed back. The championship season is going to start in line with the premiership. So we've had uh, a decent length of time to prepare these players. So I think it will be in the region of 14 to 15 weeks. Uh, And as we discussed a little bit earlier, we've started with the rugby work uh, right from day one. Um, and, And the reason for that really is ultimately we finished second the previous two years. Uh, And we want to try and find a way uh, to bridge that gap uh, and and hopefully uh, finish first this year. So we had to look at how could we do things differently? Was there a better way of what we were already doing? Uh, And therefore, we decided that we we really wanted to make sure that these guys were fully up to speed from a rugby standpoint and a physical standpoint. So what that meant is a lot of uh, detailed planning. Um, so we're quite fortunate here. We've got, a, we've got a very supportive owner. So from a, a technology perspective, uh, we've had GPS for all of our players since I've been here So for the last four seasons. So we've been really able to optimise the way that we've trained uh, in line with how we want to play the game as well. So, for instance, we've looked at um, our, some of our toughest games over the last five years, and we've looked at what exactly are the requirements um, physically from all the main positional groups along a number of different time periods. And then what that's allowed us to do then is with our rugby training go, yes, okay, uh, that session has hit our physical markers as well as the sort of the, the technical and tactical as well. How, um,
0: and, and I, I love the fact you've got an open plan office, I would be aware of lots of clubs that have, actually when they've moved away from that formation, it's, it's led to stuff not going so well and they've returned to that formation. Um, How integrated are you, even in terms of, let's say, there's someone who can't, you know, who's struggling to tackle, and it's a it's a physical issue. Um, Would it would it be that depth of conversation? Actually, you know, player A is struggling to tackle on his right hand side, and it's because of this. And so, actually, there's some conditioning stuff that we need to do to help support and become better at it. Would it be that depth of of integration?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I sit next to uh, Glenn Townsend, the forwards coach, in the office, and then opposite me would be uh, Woody, the director of rugby, and then probably to my left would be the uh, the head analyst as well. And then we have all the other staff I've already mentioned within sort of a five meter or ten meter radius, really. So yeah, we would we would we would chat informally in the office. We also have a regular meeting first thing in the morning just to outline the day. Um, any issues from the previous day as well and then at the moment uh, we have uh, the end of next week we actually have sort of performance one-on-ones with each player and that would be myself uh, Wardy and Glenn so we would go through say the previous 10 weeks of training any physical um, goals we'll have for the player any, any rugby goals for them as well so I would say it's it's integrated probably to the highest level that I have seen or experienced uh, it's, as I said, it's not perfect, but um, it, it will, obviously there are times of the day when it can get quite hectic in that type of office. But um, I also think probably that the strengths would out, out, outweigh the negatives.
0: Cool. And you've, you've clearly been in some other reasonable environments. You've been in Bristol, the great city in the world, uh, Connett with with Big Pat and uh, Wasps more recently as well. What type of stuff have you learn from those environments, so what have you taken from those places?
1: Yeah, I mean, when I, when I look back, and it's quite easy sometimes to to sort of lose sight of that. But when I look back, and I started at Bristol in 2005, I think I've been quite fortunate to, for so far for my career to span sort of the the early days of professionalism right to where we are now. So I look back at Bristol and working with some um, some colourful characters there, like uh, uh, Mark Regan, Darren Crompton, in terms of player wise. Yeah, imagining um, then... you were fun. Hard to... <laughs> think i I th- no definitely, but I think sometimes at least now the game is losing some of those characters, and I think those characters uh albeit that they would have been a fitness coach's nightmare they, they keep you on your toes and, and they uh that they keep you honest because at the end of, you know I always look back and you know you'd have any. Type of session, Ronnie would call it a sandwich filler. If it wasn't, you know, like just a pure rugby session or a pure weight session. So I sometimes refer to those days. But no, definitely um, at Bristol, uh, some some really good highs, some lows. Uh, obviously, just missing out to Exeter in the, the first championship season. Uh, but again, probably what Bristol taught me in those early days was the squad that was assembled before it got relegated, which did okay. There was a lot of experience in that squad. And I think that's something you can never lose sight of, both as a coach and as a player. I think that that depth of experience, um, you know, it provides you context and it provides you uh, ultimately more nows to rely on when you have to make uh, tough decisions. Uh, but then, yeah, going through into to Ireland was a, was a fantastic experience. So I, I moved there in 2011. And that was really sort of at the beginning of Connacht's journey into more of the limelight. So the first two years that I was there, we had uh, we qualified for the Heineken Cup by default at the time because Leinster had won the trophy. Uh, so we, we got in through the back door, really. Uh, but Eric Elwood was the head coach there at the time. He sort of had been at the province as a player and as an assistant coach and as a head coach. Uh, and he was, he was a great guy to work for. He was very down-to-earth, uh, obviously sort of led green, so to speak, for the province, wore his heart on his sleeve. Uh, And then for my last season, um, Pat Lamb uh, came in and, uh, and again, that was, it was really interesting to learn off. Pat came from uh, a school teacher background. He was very sort of regimented and organized in the way uh, that he wanted things done. And it it took a while for the players to get used to that type of system. But I think, I think he, he he did, he did a good job there. I think it's like anything, you're not always going to please everyone and, You know, there there were obviously some players that would get on on with him better than others. But uh, after that first sort of season with him, the club or the province started to get better results and climb up that table in the Pro 14, ultimately win it the year uh, that the World Cup was on. And and, uh, yeah, I look back on my time in Ireland really there as probably a defining time for me, uh, both personally and professionally, just to see the differences between how... Uh, an organisation that had a really strong vision and a strong leader, how that could align everyone else and how that message could spread down. And I, and I think Pat did that, or at least sort of built the foundations for that in my last year at Connaught And uh, I then decided to move back to the UK and there was an opportunity at Wasps in, in an assistant S&C role. And again, it was it was a very, very, very different environment from Connaught in that I found it very uh, very laid back. Uh, albeit, it probably suited the the players there at Wasps. They, you know, they had quite a very expressive style of play. Probably not as much structure as what I had been used to in Ireland. Uh, but again, it was an opportunity to work with probably the, on paper, the most talented group of players that I had been uh, involved in in a professional capacity. And it was interesting to see how they prepared, how they performed, uh, and it, and it was a really it was a really good experience, and that really led me. To Ealing, where I was, I was lucky enough. I think it was uh, Lee Blackett had spoken to uh, Alex Codling at the time, who came into Ealing as the uh, as the head coach, and and I uh, had sort of two fantastic uh, two fantastic years initially working with Codders, and then um, Codders left to go to Harlequins and. And uh, I'm now in the process of starting my my fourth year at the club, where hopefully we can we can close that gap on the team that's coming down from the Premiership and uh, and challenge the status quo.
0: Nice, well, that was a good uh, a good journey. And what, what did you, I You studied, uh, and this was this was your big dream, was it to end up doing S&C in professional rugby?
1: Yeah, well, I studied Sport and Exercise Science at university, and. Uh, played a number of sports very badly at school uh, as probably most s coaches would attest to or a little cool, of them. a little less coordinated than <laughs> normal coaches that's what I mean. exactly that's what I uh, uh, but no I, I kind of uh, I'd pr- sort of approached a few clubs it was back in 2005 and that was where strength and conditioning was just starting to get its, its name in rugby uh, and Bristol was an opportunity that came up uh, quite quickly and and it was a baptism through fire because I think that season when I was an intern, it was only me and the head fitness coach. That was the strength and conditioning mm. department. Whereas if you fast forward sort of 15 years, I mean, the, the landscape's changed remarkably in, in terms of what uh, professional rugby clubs will offer. What do, you, in terms uh, of- what do you wish your course had taught you? So what's the stuff yeah. you're thinking? Oh,
0: if I was in charge of S&C coaches, mm. courses nationally, I would introduce A, B and C. What would A, B and C be?
1: I definitely think more of an applied uh, element to the course in terms of actually practical coaching. And and I would also say dealing with different types of personalities and controlling a group. I think a lot of courses back when, at least when I was studying, they gave a a very thorough academic grounding. I think a lot of S&C courses now are are realizing they have to uh, um, provide more of an applied uh, provision to their course. Uh, but I also think in terms of those those communication skills, um, leadership skills and, and just dealing with big groups of people, I think is something you, you can teach it to a certain extent, but there there is no substitute for that experience. And I think it's something where uh, we interview interns each year here at Ealing when they come in and you can quite often see uh, the guys who are coming in that... Uh, have had experience, whether it's something completely unconnected to strength and conditioning, but if they've worked, say, in a gym, or if they've worked in a bar, um, or they've worked in a the shop, they've just got that that better level of experience in terms of dealing with people, because ultimately that's what coaching is. You are dealing with 30, or in my case, 36 different personalities, not to mention the uh, the coaching and management as well.
0: Cool. I thought you were going to say, oh, if they've worked in a comedy, comedy shop or been a magician or any of those things, that would have given them some skills. And, um, and, and look, lots of people listening, and me included, so I have my son's 14, he's just going into under-15s, he's, uh, he's debating on holiday whether he's, his guns are big enough for him to buy a basketball top. Um, what do you wish we knew? What's the stuff that you think? Oh, if I could impart this stuff, if I could share this stuff with junior coaches... Uh, this would be the stuff I would, I would reference.
1: Well, I think first and foremost, you've got to encourage uh, children of any age to play as many different sports as possible, in my opinion. Uh, I think something that we get wrong in this country, at least, is early specialisation. You know, you look at, uh, you know, I, I for instance, uh, I look after my nephew and he, he's eight and there's, there's children uh, eight years old being offered contracts, you know, in football, but they've been told they've got to give up every other sport. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think straight away you 've got to have a experiment in a broad range of sports i think you 've got to be able to move well um, so I think you know you 're looking at basic exercises basic uh, basic lifts in terms of uh, what you would do in the gym is nothing different than what they were doing fifty sixty seventy years ago i think that 's sometimes what people forget is that if you 're looking at in just basic physical preparation, nothing is new you 're just reinventing the wheel you know you look at some of the uh, The people that grew up in track and field, uh, you know, they can run well, they can lift well in the gym and and overall they're good athletes, you you know, they can throw, et cetera, et cetera. So you can, in my opinion, you can never move too far from the basics. So I think that's playing as many sports as possible, both team sports and individual sports. I think you learn different things from both those types of activities. I think in a team, you're obviously reliant upon yourself, but also other people, Whereas I think in individual uh, sports, you're really reliant upon yourself and that's it. Uh, So I think if I could sum it up in in several different areas, it would be the breadth of experience within different sports uh, and then also how you move. So sticking to the basic lifts, uh, I definitely, you know, would be trying to discourage 14 or 15 year olds away from spending an hour in the gym working on their arms, for instance. (laughs) <laughs> <myself. I'm laughs> you, okay. you might you, you might need to give them ten minutes at the end just to satisfy their ego, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: not sure. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure he would um, he would manage without the uh, without the gun work. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, and and it's interesting because once again, I play professional sport, but I didn't really go to the gym till I was 20 years old. Um, I definitely didn't lift. Until I was into my 20s. So I yeah. didn't do any kind of Olympic lift, like a clean or a
1: deadlift
0: yeah. or any of that stuff until I was into my 20s. Um, yeah. I'm, and, and younger and younger, I'm starting to, you know, so spend a bit of time over the summer coaching on camps. And I definitely see a lot of kids who are taking this type of stuff much more seriously now, whether that's yeah. body weight stuff or whether yeah. that's actually lifting stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, and I guess the demands of the game mean that that's, that's the case now, I guess.
1: Yeah, but I, I think it's like anything there has to be a balance to it. I think if you go one way and that's all you do, you just do rugby and you spend ages in the gym and you're only 15, like I, I, don't, I don't think, in my opinion, that's the healthy thing to do. I think you've still got to be playing those other sports. You know, you've still got to be able to do things like swimming. You know, I, I still see players who come into the professional environment who can't swim properly. You know, and that's just one example. So I think even those little basic activities, you've still got to be doing. And yes, okay, if you're in the gym, then you've got to make sure that you're doing the right thing for your age and um, for your for your body type. And you know, that's where I think if you get in guidance, I know a lot of schools now will have strength and conditioning coaches, and I think that's I think that's really good as long as what's being delivered, um, you know, is appropriate to those ages and, and is not putting undue pressure on children to be bigger um, and, and stronger and faster yes if they, if they have a good two or three years at school lifting then they will have improved that process but I don't think you can sort of uh, sacrifice the, the, the technique or the form for the sake of just being bigger than your mates so to speak
0: Well I can confirm that when Dan Norton joined the sevens programme he definitely couldn't swim um, <laughs> um, uh, he's a pretty good swimmer now <laughs> He's had some tough days. Um, oh, 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 and say you were going down and you were running a session on Sunday with an under twelve, under 13s team. What would be the? What would be your advice to the? You know, if the coaches are doing a, a games-based type stuff, how do you think you could support them? So, what's the? What are the areas you think that coaches are probably lacking a little bit in, in these
1: areas? Yeah, I think, uh, well, f- well. first and foremost, I think if some players that I've coached or coaches that I've worked with in the past have probably listened to this, they may laugh when I uh, mention the word fun because they probably wouldn't associate me with being a fun person all the time. <laughs> um, but uh, I think when you're working with those ages, you've got to make it competitive, you've got to make it fun. And I think when you're using games, I think that's something that uh, football or soccer, uh, whatever you want to call it, I think it's something they've done really well in terms of the use of games to achieve physical objectives, tactical objectives, technical objectives, whatever it may be. So, uh, you know, for instance, we, we use game-type scenarios here at Ealing quite a lot. And I think if I was to even 14 and 15-year-olds, you know, you can have uh, the use of games can be really helpful. So, you know, for instance, if you wanted to... Uh, have a session or, or a game that involved a lot more running in it, then obviously you could have a bigger pitch dimension. You could use a drill such as offside touch where the ball can be passed in any direction. That will encourage straight away uh, players to run into space, to look for space. Uh, they'll have to communicate as well. And then on the other side of the coin, if you wanted to have uh, a game that involved lots of touches, then straight away you could shrink the dimensions of that pitch. So straight away, there's less room to move. Um, so the, the, the players are going to be passing the ball more, receiving the ball more. They're going to have more of a, an acceleration-based physical demand. Uh, so, for instance, if we, you know, if you wanted to, you can, there are, there are breakdown game variations like that, um, where you get people in enclosed space and then straight away you're going to get more breakdown types of scenarios. Uh, and then, as I said, if you wanted more of a sort of a pure fitness demand, you'd make the pitch a lot bigger uh, and straight away the running demand would be a lot higher for the players in that game.
0: Cool. And I guess the varying numbers as well. And I mean, one of the, and I'm thinking of me at the end of preseason. So I'm super fit. I'm running, I'm running about 17 on the bleep. I'm benching about, you know, hundred kilos because I'm not that good at benching over, over somewhere else. Dan Lyle's doing 200 or Ben Sternham's doing 200. And, um, and then I get into preseason, and I've got to wrestle with people and I've got to, like, rock and tackle and get off the floor. And how are you – what are the fun ways you've been integrating some of that – you'd be integrating some of that stuff in? Because that's sort of that killed me.
1: Yeah, again, I think it comes back to making it competitive. So whenever – again, as you've alluded to there, you can include uh, wrestling work or contact-type work within games. I think the big thing to remember with games straight away is that a lot of the time they can be played for too long without a break because the main thing you want to get from that game is the quality and the intensity so if you're looking at say basic parameters something like a two minute game is a good starting point and then progressing it from there and always trying to keep uh, the recovery one-to-one to begin with so you're getting that quality because you can't forget you want the skill execution but you also want uh, the, the, the physical objectives uh, to be achieved as well. So got to, you don't want them to get into a state of plodding. And then, you know, we've, we've all been there as players or coaches when you see players just pacing through, say, a, if you play a game for six minutes of six a side, I guarantee you after around two and a half minutes, if they're 15 years of old, or even if they're 25 full-time professional, they're going to be in a state of uh, fatigue and plodding. And that's what you want to try and avoid. But if you were, if you were say to answer your question, to implement more of those contact type scenarios, uh, for instance, you could get them to do wrestle type drills within that two minute recovery, or you just, you blow a whistle anytime throughout the game. And they've got a pre designated partner. They've got to run to them uh, and perform some type of grapple work. Um, I think, you know, the the use of uh, wrestling has now been sort of prevalent in rugby for the last sort of eight years, really. So there's there's lots of uh, different types of drills out there. And really your imagination is the sort of limiting factor in how you implement them with, you know, implement that within a game. Another way you can change the stimulus in the game is man marking as well. So you can only tag that particular person oh, to man, save I me so exactly, him. exactly. So say me and you are against each other <laughs> on the six side. I can only tag you and you can only tag me. So that that's another way of, of varying the stimulus. Um, I wouldn't uh, want to have Dan answers. Norton.
0: I, I wouldn't exactly I would definitely want to have Dan Norton in the pool, uh, I wouldn't exactly. want to do man marking Dan Norton in touch.
1: No, no, definitely not. Um, but uh, yeah, there's lots of different ways of how you can vary the demands of, of those games, really. But the, the main thing is you, you want that quality and you want that intensity within the games. And I guess your ways
0: you're, you're playing around with the intensity is the, is the time limit, is the making it competitive, is scoring, is the one to one. I mean, what is is some is some of that science is, but uses a broad term. But also, I guess the game of rugby is. Is pretty much one to one. The ball is in play for roughly fifty percent, a little bit less of the game, but actually it's it's fifty percent out of play. So you're often standing around in rugby and then you've got to go at full pelt again. So I mean I'm assuming that's part of the reasoning behind that.
1: Yeah, 100%. And there will be elements throughout, for instance, in the pre-season we have here where you will give the players incomplete recovery. Because within a game, there may be times when they do have a very short amount of recovery and they have to go again. But yeah, I mean, the ball in play, I don't think has changed, even at the international level, that much over the last sort of uh, three to five years, I think, it, for international rugby, I think it's still hovering somewhere around thirty-nine minutes, maybe max of uh, forty. Uh, but what has been changing uh, is the the intensity, so that the speed it's played at, the amount of high-speed running that players will do, and to get that type of stimulus within your training, you need to be training with intensity. And as we all know. Um, you know, if I ask you to run 100 meters flat out, you're going to run that at a quicker pace. than if I ask you to run 800 meters flat out, so you can't have volume and intensity right at the top. You've got to have that intensity, but then also have the recovery in order then to execute and go again uh, in the next set.
0: Nice. And how and how are you individualizing it? So clearly, there'll be some people often with lower numbers who would have some different physical requirements. To, so I would be in the middle of the numbers. I would be like six, seven, eight. Um, how are you individualising stuff to ensure that, you know, obviously outside backs are getting high-speed runs, yeah. forwards getting some stuff that's a bit more closer to what they're getting in games, but I guess they're also getting a, some kind of stimulus to stretch them as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the way we do it is once they had their their fitness testing and their their skin folds. There are undoubtedly some players that we wouldn't put into a small-sided game until they'd improved significantly because games are very good at sort of developing your fitness into more of a specific form but not necessarily in terms of developing the the basic physical quality. So those guys would stay working on more traditional efforts until they got to a a better level before they could go into the games. Uh, But within the games themselves, uh, that's where uh, you've got to be relying on your experience and also the drill bank. We we've built up a number of years of data for certain drills and certain games. Uh, and it's about getting a balance between having that game purely working on physical uh, characteristics because we try to avoid having, say, a fitness session with a ball in, which could be disguised as offside touch. So, quite often we'll do a lot of 12v12 or 10v10 because you, you can still get, say, some of your attacking shapes and your defensive shapes in place uh, and still get uh, a decent physical output without compromising. Um, sort of the rugby side. And that also lends itself then to, you know, say for instance, if you're a a forward, you're going to be attending more breakdowns and say uh, one of the outside backs. And that obviously suits what they're going to be demanded from them within the the actual matches. Um, So that's how we would individualize it. We would also uh, look at things like when a winger scores in a game, we would try and have, they would get extra points Uh, for getting as many of the front five within a certain uh, distance from that score because uh, we find at the moment that uh, getting the front five up to speed to play that high tempo uh, brand of rugby, it takes them a lot longer to get to that level of fitness required. Uh, So we try and incentivize it, you know, so they work harder and more efficiently as a team as well.
0: Nice. I like that. It's a good little twist. Back in the day. So, I know you said rugby was just starting in 2005, but it started even earlier when I was playing and uh, that would be called Fat Club. I don't think it's called Fat Club anymore, and quite rightly so.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, there's probably more politically correct ways of calling it yeah, now, yeah. I'd imagine. But
0: um, and, and I guess with a really long pre-season, it's actually, it's probably pretty cool that they've gone away and had a bit of time off and forgotten about rugby for a period of time and I would hope people would be quite chilled about that.
1: Um, yeah, I think you have to... I think in the modern game as well, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of press out there nowadays about you know sort of the pressures and the mental health aspect. And uh, I think when a player goes away for the off season, you know we, we encourage them to keep in in physical condition. But as you said there, I think it is really important that mentally they switch off because obviously when they do come back, it is it is uh, very pressurized and relentless in its nature.
0: And what would and to what extent would you be coaching in those games? Lots of people would say, you're an S&C coach, you're not a coach. You know, what, how would you, to what extent would you be coaching some of the, you know, the steel type stuff?
1: So where we were at the moment, the rugby coaches would do most of it. I would sit down and discuss the parameters in terms of what we were looking for physically, the length of the games, the number of um, sets, the recovery, um, any little variations we want to it. Uh, they they would pretty much do most of it. Uh, and But then when the season starts, uh, so for instance, non-23 or anything like that, I would referee those games. And I feel comfortable doing either. But I think personally, I think if you can get the rugby coaches involved in refereeing them, I think it works a lot better because... The players, uh, whether you like it or not, straight away they see that as being more important if a rugby coach is refereeing it, and they're more likely to apply themselves better. Um, and uh, if I referee it, first of all, my refereeing is terrible, um, and I'm more than likely to receive lots of abuse from the players. So. <laughs> Whereas the, the coaches can probably get away with it a bit more.
0: And they don't think you're—they uh, don't think you're selecting the team.
1: No. Definitely not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and what would it look like? So give me a typical, like, within a week. So once you get into season, uh, yeah. what's, what's your role within a week? Where do you, where do you sit?
1: Yeah, so in terms of so the involved, the layer... And the sorry, reaction, say again.
0: To what extent has that evolved over the last, you know, 10, 15 years as well for you?
1: Yeah, so... I, I mean, ultimately, I think it's very easy to lose sight of what you're trying to do in a week. And it's very basic. You're trying to prepare a group of players to execute your game plan at the weekend. And that really is the ultimate goal. Now, obviously, there's lots of parts to that puzzle. uh, There's lots of plates that need to be spun. But ultimately, uh, in a normal seven-day turnaround, uh, so playing Saturday to Saturday, we'll come in on the Monday. And... That pretty much is like a a review and preparation day, we call it. So we we review the previous game. There'll be lots of unit meetings, individual player meetings, team reviews. Um, We'd also have a light rugby session where we'd look to prepare our game plan for the following week. What do we need to change? What little uh, sort of uh, nuances do we need to put in there? That'd be quite light. Uh, and then the following day we would call is, uh, so pace. So we look to execute everything at full pace, but with full recovery. And that's really where you're sort of ramping up the preview aspect and, um, implementing the game plan you're going to play at weekend. And then on a Wednesday, we call it our pressure day. So you're looking to put that plan under pressure. So that would involve lots of say uh, long born play periods, So two, three, four minute periods, really stressing the players, Uh, And then we would have Thursday as a training free day. And then we'd have quite a short, but quite an intense team run on the Friday. That's Um, changed. That's changed, doesn't it? It has. I've worked with both models. We used to work with a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and we experimented with it towards the end of last season. uh, And we found there was more of a natural flow to what we're doing now in terms of the layering of information, uh, but also, getting the players up to that peak on the Wednesday and then them having a day off on the Thursday and then quite a, a fast-paced team run on the Friday. Uh, we found that the players were, and again, it's only anecdotally, but they felt a lot fresher going into the games. And and also they, they liked the flow to the week in terms of uh, the progression and intensity of the sessions from the Monday to the Tuesday to the Wednesday. Uh, and ultimately as long as they were still getting their their day off a lot of them that's what uh, they were worried about but uh, and ultimately we've got results you know you can uh, but but that's not the be all and end all we try to look at it objectively at the end of the season as well and, and how did some of our session intensities through our gps compared to the old model and so far we're happy with this new way and uh, this is that's what we'll be working with moving forwards
0: yeah cool and that will be coming the norm as well for people to start to give names to sessions so installation or the game session or as you know you in the past, exactly would be a bit more bit more common how do you um I two other questions one is around recovery so how does what does recovery look like for for, for, for players and staff so yeah. really season's very long um it's pretty relentless championship um yeah. week to week to week to week yeah whatever competition is running how sure. do how do players recover? How do, how do staff recover?
1: So if we take the, the player one first, I think uh, player recovery, you have to get the foundations in place uh, initially, which is they have to be in good habits sleep-wise and from a nutritional perspective. Now, that doesn't mean that we expect them to live like monks, but what it does mean is that for 80% of the week, they're able to get eight to nine hours sleep a night. Uh, they're able to eat um, good food from naturally resourced uh, products, and they're not, you know, not ingesting too much processed and sugary and salt and all that, all that kind of uh, rubbish, really. So nutrition and sleep are the first building blocks for their recovery. And then on top of that, uh, we take quite an individual approach. So I used to be in the past would have like standard ice baths. Everyone has to do them, but. Then, really, if you've got someone, I can remember Dan, at Dan Bristol.
0: Norton. Uh, Dan Norton doesn't have ice baths.
1: <laughs> I, can remember, I can remember at Bristol, I can remember vividly making them get in the ice baths in the winter, and uh, Roy Winters at the time um, hated getting in them. And then, and then ultimately, I suppose, through experience, age, and wisdom, you go, yeah, probably what I was doing then was a bit uh, counterproductive because when you're in the winter in the UK and you're trying to get players into ice baths, they're probably better off spent. Uh, spending some time in a sauna because the one thing we don't get in the UK is heat in the winter so I think you've got to to individualise it we we try to encourage them to hit a number of modalities throughout the week in their own time so whether it's going to the pool on their day off getting massage, uh, stretching um, and there's lots of you know, really good infographics you can get out there that will um, sort of uh, educate the players on those. How about
0: stretching? Because someone told me the other day, at my age, given my yeah. physical prowess, which is pretty low, I should be yeah. stretching about four times a day. Um, yeah, I, th- I, I and think... Never, it, and I never stretched.
1: No, but I, I think that's where it comes down to the player. As I said, you, you've got to find out what works for the player. You've got to speak to them. You've got to have that... Um, that relationship and I, and I think that's something as well that you you get good at over time when i was younger and uh, you know I, I was a head and c coach when i was 25 at the time but back then I, I saw i looked back at myself then and realized i was probably extremely stubborn autocratic and pig-headed now some people may say that the same that, that I, I am that now as well but i I like, I like to think that i've sort of toned it down a bit and you've got to be able to sort of have those relationships with the players and find out what works for them because there are some players that will need to stretch and that they find that that's a really good uh, part of their recovery. Now, physiologically, it might not do much, but mentally they think it's working for them. So really it is. You don't want to take that placebo effect away from them. Uh, so you need to you need to have those conversations with the players. And I think, as you mentioned, their coach, sort of the, the coach recovery as well is just as important because when you are a coach, you need to be delivering your best uh, possible version of yourself within sessions. And you can only do that if you're well rested and, you know, and and have a good balance to your life. And, uh, you know, we're, we're lucky at Ealing in terms of uh, Ben Ward, the director of rugby, you know, he, he makes sure that we're, he holds us all accountable to perform our roles, but, you know, he understands that if a day off is a day off, if we don't need to come in, we don't come in, you know, whereas, You can be in other places where you're in on your day off, but what you were doing in your day off could probably take an hour, but you're in there for six hours. So I think that that's an example. You've got to have that balance. You've got to take those days off. Uh, And I also think after games, uh, you've got to be able to sort of, you know, not be too over-emotional or reactive. And And again, I think the more games that you experience as a coach and the more experience you do have as a coach in terms of professional rugby, the better you are able to be able to do that rather do
0: you give feedback to coaches so um how does that work i'm always thinking about how do coaches review and reflect on their on their performance i guess you guys would do it a lot and you would probably get some you know often because you're not selecting the team you'd get some good feedback from people but also lots of your stuff would be the objective so you get feedback Uh, what do you notice about I mean I've I've heard you say lots of good stuff about Wardy I've heard some real good stuff how does that relationship work between you and him
1: yeah so I think if we go back to the feedback uh, aspect to begin with I think feedback is something that is not always done really well in professional rugby Uh, and I think I've been lucky enough to I've read quite a few uh, books but also sort of spoken to people firsthand within the uh, the military world. And I think feedback is something they do incredibly well. Uh, and you can read up on there's various different things, you know, like an, an after action review is what the Americans would call when they debrief a mission. Um, the Brits may call it uh, I think they used to call it uh, some sort of a wash up or something like that. And essentially what it is, is is reviewing a performance as a group, but with n- no egos involved essentially. So if you had six people, and there were two people there with a a senior rank, it would involve having a conversation, but like you were all on the same level. Obviously, ultimately, and ultimately the the leadership have to make the final decisions, but you're all putting your views into whatever has just transpired, that particular performance, if it's in sport, that particular mission, if it's occurred within the military world. And so uh, something we try to do as coaches is we have... Um, when we have our meetings in the mornings, we have one or two clear objectives that we're looking to get from the session. And uh, and then usually, it doesn't happen all the time, but we try to make a habit of just having that informal type of conversation on the field straight after the session. Um, and that might even just be myself, uh, Wardy and Glenn or other coaches sometimes. Um, uh, Steve Neville does the, the scrum and also some strength and conditioning in the evening. And then we also have Jimmy Lowe's who does some of the skills as well, so we try and have those informal discussions both pre and post uh, the session to say well, I didn't you know what were we looking for today? Did we achieve that? And obviously sometimes you do and, and sometimes you don't. Uh, and then the following day in that early morning meeting, um, you, you also have had chance and as a coach to have watched the footage because obviously as well, sometimes straight after a session, you think you haven't done something, and then you look back and you go, "Oh yeah, actually the players did achieve that. We did get out of that session what we wanted to. Um, so, I think feedback is really important. I think as coaches we are better at giving each other feedback than players are in giving each other feedback would be my my experience. I think a lot of players don't want to give each other feedback because they don't want to sort of uh, break that they're scared that if I'm a player and you're a player and I tell you you haven't done your job well um, you know you're, I won't say that to you because I'll be scared of how that will affect our relationship moving forward whereas I would say from a coaching standpoint uh, we would find it a lot easier to say oh that session didn't flow well or your bit of the session I didn't think achieved X Y or Z whatever it may be um, in terms of the relationship that I have uh, with audio as well is uh, you know it's an open and, 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 uh, and transparent relationship ultimately you know any, any sort of head strength and conditioning coach um, head of performance my job is to serve the needs of the rugby program in my opinion and create an environment um, that that is an extension of what he wants to achieve um, with, within the club, uh, and that's both uh, physically, um, cu- culturally, um, and uh, and and psychologically as well. And you know, you, you, do, do we get it right all the time? No, um, uh, but we're always trying to get better um, each day, and you know, and, and each season.
0: Cool. How do you? How are you doing the club? How are you? Supporting the culture of the uh, programme?
1: Well, I think first and foremost, any, any type of sort of leadership or culture, you, you have to be able to, uh, to lead yourself. And, uh, you know, every, every day at work and away from work, uh, I, I try and have, you know, make sure that I'm honest, uh, have a high level of integrity, um, and that I reflect the, the behaviours or the traits that I would want in a team. You know, things like self-discipline, hard work, uh, being open to feedback. So, for instance, you know, at the end of last season, uh, I sent a few players, you know, a series of questions, actually, that I got from the, I don't know if you've read the book, The Culture Code by Daniel, um, Coyle. Uh, what's his surname? Yeah, Coyle, that's the one. Yeah. Uh, and And I found that a really good book. And there were, I can't remember which chapter it was in, but they were talking about feedback and three questions that they were asking. And uh, I, I, gave, I gave that to a number of players. It was anonymous, obviously. And so I think you've, you've always got to be open to improving. And I think if you're not, then it probably says that you're quite insecure in yourself, professionally or personally. Um, so that's how I would try and affect that culture, firstly, is by my own example, because I think... Um, I think it was. Uh, or who was it? It was. Uh, there's a book by uh, Admiral McRaven, who was the commander in charge or planned the operation for um, when they when they uh, killed Osama bin Laden. And oh. he had a quote, and he and he said the quote that he had was, um, "People don't listen to what you say; they watch your feet." So ultimately, saying you know you can talk as much as you want. And you can say all these things, but ultimately it's going to come down to your actions. You know, your, your actions will speak volumes. Um, because I'm, as I'm sure you have, you know, there's lots of organizations in sport and outside sport that have these, uh, you know, these, these values put up on the wall and, and actually, in actual fact we did about, uh, 16, 17 months ago, which sp- we spent quite a lot of time and effort into getting these values up to scratch and, um, they pretty much were null and void two weeks into preseason when, uh, you know, we lost our head coach to, you know, uh, uh, to a team in the premiership. So you have to, uh, we've probably gone the other way a little bit this year, but just trying to have less words, but um, plastered up everywhere. But just trying to be very specific in how we want to go about ourselves on a day-to-day basis.
0: Yeah, Shane Fletcher from the Crusaders. And one of the things I loved when I spoke to him was he spoke about. Uh, so he went into Birmingham City, and he said, "I loved it because all the coaches were on their toes." Yeah, so I just you know it would fuel all my biases. How uh, would you? It sounds like you read a lot of books. Give me some books you've read that you think would be good
1: recommendations. Oh, lots. Yeah, I have I have read lots actually. And um, I think the Culture Code is a really good one. I think probably people from say coaching. Uh, right at the lower level, right to the top, or, or even if they're not involved in coaching, would get a lot from that book. Uh, I'd also have to say uh, there's a there's a guy that's helped me a lot. It's been a mentor for me, a guy called Floyd Woodrow. He's written two books. Elite. Um, Elite. Elite and The Warrior. It um, starts with The Warrior something. I can't remember the second one. The Warrior, The Strategist and something. It, and that's about a compass, how a compass aligns all your... Sort of, you're, you're, yeah, that's it. Your goals, and, and that's that's a really good book. Uh, I think some of the books at the moment in America that are sort of a couple of guys have come out and written. I think you know, obviously, your extreme ownership by Jocko Willink is quite a good book. Uh, again, for all different types of people involving sport and non-sport. Um, what if the one also- trying
0: to do a bluff? You know, a
1: bluffers guide to S and
0: Young yeah. want to go somewhere. Is there any websites, any coaches? I quite like some of the stuff. I think it's generally does on uh, Twitter, but any other places where you're noticing some people doing some good stuff?
1: Yeah, I think any young S&C coach looking to start out, look at some of the resources I used many years ago. I think Louis Simmons at Westside Barbell, which is a powerlifting, uh, powerlifting gym in the States. Uh, but there are a lot of resources out there to do with him. And he's implemented a lot of the old Russian work as well. Um, and I think that's a, it's a fantastic starting point. I would encourage you if you were a young coach to, if I was looking back, what would I change? I think spending more time in track around track and field coaches and track and field athletes, I no. think would be a, re- would be a really good experience. Uh, I think uh, being involved in some sort of – if you're looking to work within rugby and you haven't played rugby, um, I think as, as, as well as playing it or attempting to play it yourself, also looking at some of the um, the martial arts give you experience in terms of that that body contact and combat type aspect of the game, whether that's judo, wrestling, uh, MMA, whatever it may be. A uh, good website is Elite FTS which is an American website that's got a lot of uh, really uh, good experienced people writing on it all the way from people who are working powerlifting, people who are working in American football, track and field, sort of the whole spectrum in the States. Um, I think from a sports science perspective, I think Australia is probably uh, a good place as, long, as well as the UK. I'd say the UK is, is probably almost on a level playing field with them now. But I think if you, If you were looking to visit any places, I think some of the AFL clubs, uh, the budgets that they have and how they use uh, sports science and the level of staffing they have, I think, uh, are probably still right up there and ahead of... Um, most places in the in the u k and and undoubtedly most places in America, I think America's just starting to get to grips with GPS and sports science, which some people may find strange, but some aspects of uh, American football can still be quite in the dark ages, but I think they 're slowly coming out of it, and I think once they do they'll sort of, they 'll progress even more really
0: What are the top two two environments you've you 've been to or you 've heard about?
1: Oh, that's, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, at the time, I went in 2012 to Australia for 10 days and I visited the Brumbies at the time. And that was when Jake White had just taken them over. Laurie Fisher had gone back there. Stephen Larkham had gone back there. Another guy who was a mentor for me, Dean Benton, had just uh, gone back there as the head of athletic performance. I think that environment for that particular time, I've, I was there for two and a half days. and I thought it was... I thought it was fantastic just in terms of the whole operation from bottom to top, rugby, S&C. They were very integrated at the time, which was still quite a new concept. That would definitely be one. So get in the time uh,
0: so you can go back seven years. To,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah so that, yeah, that, that would have been 2012. Uh, more recently, I think from a, in a pure, just in rugby, I think Ealing, we've been lucky enough to go up a couple of times to train against Saracens. And I think the environment they have up there, just in terms of uh, how welcoming they were. How welcoming uh, I th- Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, th- I thought they were, they were, it was a really good place. It had really good vibes. Um, and I would have said that even if they'd been top of the premiership or if they'd been mid-table. So I think that's a, a credit to obviously the, a lot of the, the coaches and the players there. That environment was very good. Um, most, welcoming,
0: anyway. most welcoming rugby environment I've been in as well.
1: Yeah, no, definitely, and I, and I get the same when I speak to other people that have been there. Uh, because um, I'm sure there are places that you can go in the Premiership that aren't like that. Um, and okay. the fact that they are, the, the fact that they them. are like that, the fact that they are like that, and they have won it and been so successful speaks volumes. Uh, non rugby, trying to think, any any ones that would be non rugby. Um, yeah, i will be struggling to think off the top of my head for non-rugby ones, to be honest. Maybe I need to broaden my horizons and get yeah, out mate, to the Brit non-rugby school, ones a bit
0: Brit more. Is my favourite. I'm going to do. I'm going to finish with the one words. I've got some one worders. Yeah, gonna, you're going to give me a one word response. Uh, okay. Lots of these are people. Lots of them are club. Okay. So only because we will. Uh, Ty Sterry Friendly. Really. <laughs> Uh, Glenn Towson. Passionate. Uh, ben, apparently I had a fight with Glenn Towson once. Uh, ben Williams.
1: <laughs> Ambitious.
0: Uh, Ealing. Progressive. Connert.
1: So one word, one word, one word for Connor.) Um... Defining. Uh, Bristol. Happy.
0: I'll, I'll concur with that one. Uh, wasps.
1: Challenging. Rugby. Fun. s Fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I had to say that, didn't I? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Uh, culture easy yeah it should be and last yeah. but by no means least uh Andy Holloway messaged me what why is one plus one not always equal to two was that was that what he said
1: yeah so uh Hollis really likes one of the sayings I have that I read in the book and it was that uh, uh two is one and one is none so it alludes to the fact that if you have two of something if you lose one you still have one but obviously if you have one of it and you lose it then you have none. So I think it was the fact that I reminded him about that one, one day when he'd forgotten his whistle and that's probably why it's stuck in his head.
0: <laughs> nice mate, look it's been a pleasure. Loads of stuff there for coaches. If people want to kind of get in touch where can they find you?
1: Uh yeah I'm on social media so I think Twitter's probably the easiest place. I think my uh my name it's Tom McLaughlin83. Well, if you search that on Twitter I'm pretty sure it comes up
0: find you mate awesome enjoy the rest of pre-season have great fun sleeping in the director's box tonight (laughs) no Uh, problem thanks very much I will speak soon cheers dude cheers mate take care bye bye